You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today we have Mr. Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network himself, Dan Johnson. Um, Dan and I, uh, obviously, we talk every now and then because we're on the same podcast network, and he mentioned he was going out west again this year for mule deer, and uh, we wanted to get him on the podcast because you've been doing mule deer and western hunting. We were just talking in the green room for a long time, years. Um, I've been doing it. I would say probably the same timeline going out West uh, as you. Um, and uh, like uh, all of our listeners know, I've never shot an elk with my bow. I've been pretty okay with a rifle, but that getting that, that tag punched with a bow in the West as a, as a whitetail hunter, as a tree stand whitetail hunter, it's not a skill set that directly correlates. And it sounds like you have kind of a similar, um, story with your adventures in the West. It's, it's, it's definitely different. Like you throw all your tactics out, and you and you kind of got to start from scratch, and so I wanted to talk about that with you because you're doing you're doing like front range mule deer, right? Well, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I'm <laughs> okay. doing uh, I'm doing I'm doing Western South Dakota. Okay. Uh, so basically, your your prairie uh, where prairie meets kind of like the the Black Hills mm. area. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of flat tops and when you're on these flat tops you can see forever i mean you can see until your eyes but then you drop down to all these cuts and these drainages uh where they like to hang out so it's like uh real broken country broken yes exactly yeah Yeah, that's kind of where i started my mule deer hunting um career was in the badlands of north dakota um a little bit different because we don't have yeah that front range what i mean i guess what i mean when i talk about the front range is like the foothills the broken country leading up into the mountains so like it would kind of be the like the like the um black hills front country is what you're kind of hunting um which is just the only reason i bring that up is you're not in like black timber alpine mule deer country like that's a completely different hunt yeah right right and so have you been going late October, like, because you, we went late October this year, right? Yeah, I went late October and this is the, this is the latest that I've ever gone. Mm-hmm. 
uh, on my South Dakota trip. Now, I, I will say this. I've been mule deer hunting in Nebraska a handful of times as well. Uh, but, you know, it's that western part of the state, northwestern part of the state. And, uh, and so I've done like three or four, I want to say three of those trips, four of those trips, and then five years worth of five or six, five or six years worth of mule deer hunts to South Dakota. And so that's, that's my, I just need to like put that out there. That is my experience level. That's, it's only been five, six years. I still go out there every year and wonder why I continue to do this to myself. But this was my first year going out this late into October. Um, I've gone like for, for South Dakota opener, non-resident is October 1st. And so I've, I've been out there for the opener. I've been out there for the second week. I've been out there for the third week. And now this year, I've also been out there for the last week, including a couple times where I went out there in December to try to fill a tag that I didn't fill in October. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because I think October is kind of like, I would call it like a lull in the, in the mule deer season as well. Um, there's early season velvet. A lot of people go out very early and they try to get them on beds. It's hot. There's a lot of bedding throughout the midday. And if you can, you can bed them. I've been told you can typically get a stock together. Um, but the mule deer rut is really late for anyone that doesn't know. Like I would say right now, like this week, November 20th is really the start of the mule deer rut. Like this would probably be that like pre-rut, um, a little bit of seeking and chasing. And then, yeah, I'd say maybe the next 10 days is like the peak of the mule deer rut. It's about two and a half weeks past white behind whitetails. And so, okay, you know, that, that late October, I'm a little surprised knowing you and knowing your passion for whitetail hunting that you, you left Iowa for late October this year. Yeah. And it, it really, what it came down to was schedule. I, I showed my wife a calendar and said, <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to go to South Dakota one of these weeks it's going to be the third week or the fourth week in october you pick it Mm. so she picked the fourth week which i think she regretted because it ended up leading right into you know i got back on i got back on the 30th um i uh, i did the whole halloween thing with the family and then i went right into hunting the rut here in iowa and so um, I don't think I will go back next year, the last week in October, even though I think I liked it a little bit more because of the cooler temperatures, yeah. uh, beca- because the deer were on their feet a little bit more mm-hmm. than they, they are early season. You know, early, I like going early season because, you know, they have, they're still on a really strict bed to food pattern. Mm-hmm. Most times they're, they're going back to the same food source multiple times in a row. Um, as opposed to this, where they're, the food start sources are, tra- are starting to dry up. So I think they're traveling a lot more looking for food sources, right. As opposed to, you know, early October, late September, they the food sources are still right there. And they're, they're all over the place. And so they don't have to travel as much, but as that all dries out. And as you know, 
and the rest of the western uh part of the country knows it was it's been extremely dry yeah and so food sources on that aspect are also they dry up they're limited and and then it just even limits it more leading into i guess the the rut yeah and then you throw on top of that your cattle rotations grazing rotations yes. and some of your yes. spots where you're like man this valley was dynamite i'm going back here this year mm-hmm. and you get there and it's been grazed out all summer long and there's no feed and there's no deer i mean it's yeah it's almost the same as like a corn bean rotation for whitetails is like the food sources can change year to year just depending on agricultural rotations so yeah <clears throat> One thing that I've always done before every season that I go out there, excuse me, is I do a lot of e-scouting, just like anybody who goes out of state does. And so you find these spots and you're like, ooh, this looks, this looks money. This looks money. You get there and there's a thousand head of cattle there (laughs) that have literally eaten the vegetation down to the dirt. Yeah. Right. And so the mule deer aren't there. Yeah. They're not going to, they're not eating dirt. And so they've been pushed somewhere else. And then, and then you got to start, you got to start from scratch. You do. And it's funny. Have you noticed this about mule deer compared to some of the other species that you've hunted that a lot of times they're in places, you find them in places where you were like, why are you here? Like on paper, this is a terrible place for you to be living. You know, for like yeah. whitetails, you find food, you find cover, there's going to be deer there. Elk, you find right. black timber, you find a bench third of the way up the mountain, there's going to be elk sign there. But sometimes a mule deer, they're just out in the middle of nowhere, almost like an antelope, just on their own. And you're like, why are you over here? Yeah, and, that, and that's one thing it's hard for me, that's been hard for me as a whitetail hunter, is... There are certain things mule deer do that are the same, but there's a lot that they do that are just completely different. And I'm, you know, like for the first couple of years, I'm like, okay, all deer do this. Well, that's not true, right? <laughs> uh, mule deer are a completely different species. So I had, I have to go in and I have to learn how they move through the, uh, the terrain. They are, they're dumb in a certain aspect, meaning like I, I have literally, rode drove a truck or have ridden my e-bike or even walked right in front of them and they do not move right western like a western whitetail they see you adios dude and you they will run until you you can't even see them anymore yeah a mule a mule deer though will sit and watch you and and they'll watch you and watch you They're, they're they're frozen and they think that you can't see them and then if you get inside this comfort zone, then what they'll do is they'll bounce, 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 stop, look back, and then they'll they'll run away until they can't see you anymore. And then they go back to being comfortable. They'll try to find a bed. So I, there are times where I'm able to get back on a deer that I already spooked. But really from a strategy standpoint on, on mule deer, I'm doing something that's no different than probably what everybody else is doing and that's mornings afternoons trying to find where they stand up or what cracks and crevices that they're in and just spot and glass all day long yeah and then you change high spot and you're glassing the exact same drainage just from a different angle and you're glassing again until you locate one when you locate one 
you, then you got to say to yourself, okay, where's the wind direction? How am I going to approach him? And, and really just go on stock. And for me, this is what, this is what hunting mule deer is. Locate them, go on a stock, get busted, locate a different deer, go on a stock, get busted. <laughs> and it's just, that's the cycle. But I will say this, that every stock I go on, something right happens. And I learn a little bit more yeah. about how much I can get away with, like what to do if a deer is bedded down in a certain area. And so basically the type of mule deer hunting that I'm doing is that bed attack, you know, attack them while they're in their bed type right. type hunting and uh, try to sneak up on them. Very rarely do I ever catch them on their feet and try to go into maybe the next drainage that they're working into and get a shot at them just because there's no cover yeah. uh, out there where, where I hunt. So really I'm having to use the terrain as the blocker and, and me put myself in position. And, and sometimes you can look for me anyway, this is one thing that I need to get better at is I can look in a drainage, I can find the deer, I can put a plan together, but then the issue comes, I get in there, I've put the plan together and now they're still 70 or 80 yards away. Yeah. And so the, to be clear, you've been, de you're a dedicated bow hunter or not maybe dedicated bow hunter, but you're a very avid bow hunter knowing you, yep. your bow is always your first choice and you've been trying to do this yep. with a bow. Um, yep. And so like, that's where the 70, 80 yard bubble becomes an issue. And like, yep. I've heard a lot of people say like mule deer are so dumb and especially the young ones for sure. They're dumb. They'll let you shoot them with the bow right off the road. But mm -hmm. the mature ones, they do behavior that I think whitetail hunters think is dumb. But when you have a bow, it might not mm -hmm. matter if it looks dumb or not. It's still really incredibly hard to get within bow range of a mature mule deer. Um, yeah, for yeah. rifle hunting, it they do, story. they do a lot of things that aren't very good for their survival. Like the whole run yeah. 100 yards and stop and look back at the next skyline. Like that's a pretty easy mark or, or a pretty easy rifle shot when they stop at that 200-yard yeah. mark. But with a bow, you know, and it's it, it it's so frustrating because it looks so stupid for us, mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. it still doesn't work. And a lot of people yeah. that I've talked to have said, like, a, a, a Boone and Crockett mule deer might be one of the hardest Boone and Crockett animals in, in the lower yeah. 48 to, to find and harvest. You know, obviously, forget about the, like, the MSG tags. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors. From the moment I first saw a Steelhead Outdoor Safe, I knew I was going to order one. The ability to customize the color, the configuration, and most importantly, the ability to move and assemble my safe panel by panel makes Steelhead Outdoors the clear winner when it comes to gun safes. And if you haven't ordered a Steelhead Outdoor Gun Safe yet, you can still benefit from their innovation and creativity because the guys over at Steelhead have designed some awesome accessories their case keeper allows you to hang all of your hunting caps and gun cases off the side of your safe and it keeps your hunting room looking clean and organized or my favorite is the bow keeper that lets me hang my bow off the side of my safe so me and my wife can walk into our safe room hang up our bows after shooting in the backyard and not have to worry about the hassle of putting our bows back in the case every time both the bow keeper and case keeper are magnetic and work with any safe, 
which means you can use them now with your current safe. And when the time comes to order your Steelhead Outdoors gun safe, you'll already have all the accessories you need. Head over to SteelheadOutdoors.com to order your bowkeeper and case keeper today. That you just can't even draw in your lifetime. Yeah. But because they don't, they don't really call. You can tweak and you know we had Jason Phelps on the call and he said there's doing there's some things you can do like if you got to get them to cross a fence line, but they're not coming in like an elk. They're not patternable like a whitetail. You know you can't. Right. They just they they're out there doing their own thing and it's it's so incredibly hard to get within bow range of them. And I don't think like the drought helps. Like you talk about trying yeah. to stock it to seventy yards. The last mule deer I shot. I ran out of cover at 496. Now, luckily, I had a 300 wind mag instead of a mm-hmm. Matthews Halon, and, and the deer still came home with me. But it was like a golf green. It was a putting green of cover that I had, and I was trying to yeah. crawl, and it, he's sitting up there watching me crawl at him. You know, And if yeah. you're trying to do that with a bow, like you said, you're, you're really dependent on how broken is the country. Can I get around hiding behind ridges and plateaus to get close enough? Because there's no grass. Like, you can't just crouch and crawl through the sage there's no sage right right the other thing that i run into right outside of this this bubble that you've talked about is all the other eyes that you can't see right Mm. and so i'm glassing i oh oh, there's a buck i want to make a move now in my hunting career right now i'm not after any type of mature anything i'm after a mule deer buck like that's what i want and so i'm not i'm I'm hunting the first anything that's legal that's what i'm going after right okay and so when i go and i'm i'm glassing i'm glad oh there's a buck so i go in i do my stock the other thing that i have a real problem of trying to overcome and and i think this is something that i'm i'm sure even experienced mule deer spot and stock mule deer hunters have to deal with and that's all the other deer that are bedded in the same drainage that you may not have seen going yeah. up you know going into and so i now i'm on a stock and now either i see something or maybe i turn back and look uphill and there's three does standing right next to me and when they take off so does the buck right yeah and so just getting past all their eyes. I mean, I I've been on, I've, I've spotted up a really good buck. Here's one example from a couple of years ago, glass them up, shooter buck. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to get another angle on this deer to see if there's anything else in the drainage, get in there. There's deer on, there's does on both sides of the drainage. And it's, it's so awesome to see this because I don't, I don't know if whitetails do this, and the reason I don't know if they do this, because it, I can't see them yeah. like I can see a mule deer. Okay. But, and actually this same exact thing happened this past year too, where the biggest, oldest mature buck will wait to bed last after all of the other deer have bed. And he puts himself right in the middle mm. of all of, you know, all these other deer. And not only is he have his back and wind to his favor, but he can also see reactions of other deer. If in fact, something's coming from a place that might be a a block to him. And so as a whole, these deer are not just betting in their best favor. 
but they're also betting in an area where yeah or in a in a, in a scenario where they're helping each other by betting where they're betting yeah it's almost like all the like medieval video movies you watch and there's like a, a tower up on the mountain that's starts a yep. fire and then everyone in the valley knows like there's an issue coming um yep yep and i think Absolutely. that's that's i think that's one um the, uh, a unique aspect of hunting the broken country so typically in october in the in a true mountain range the bucks are still up high by themselves in bachelor groups all the way through october and then in november they start coming down to find does typically and the does usually yeah. don't just on average it's stereotypes but don't go up as high well in the broken country there is no um you know alpine for those mature bucks to go to so they're just always with the deer so not every, you yeah. know it's just gonna be just as hard to climb to thirteen thousand feet to find a, a mature buck as it is to figure out how to get through all these eyeballs but they're just they yeah. do like things that are hard to hunt Yep. Especially in an area where there are good numbers of deer. Now, one thing that I've found is it's easier. It's harder to find the deer, mm -hmm. but easier to make a spot, a uh, spot and stock on a deer that is uh, in a lower quantity area. Yeah. I listened to a podcast that Ryan Lampers was on, which I think he goes by Stealthy Hunter and he hunts with the Gritty Crew a lot. And he was describing a hunt where he watched the same mule deer buck for 10 days until mm -hmm. that mule deer bedded in a spot where he could think he had a chance. And so for 10 days, he went out and he watched and he didn't go on a stock. And then on yep. the 11th day, he said, oh, there it is. Now I can shoot him and went in and got him. And it's just like, obviously, it's a, it, he's talking about trophy quality once, you know, you're not going to just go and find a different buck of that stature. And so that was the one, Every he time. yeah, that's yeah. the one he decided he wanted and he just stayed on it until that opportunity gave itself. But the kind of goes to shows like, I know I've done this enough that, you know, that, that stock's not going to work if there's three does bedded, um, you know, upwind of him. Cause to come in with the wind in my favor, I'm going to blow those does out. And then the, the whole gig is yeah. up or, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do it when there's a, a doe on the other side of the Canyon that I need to access it. it there's so many yep. things that it, that go wrong yep. <laughs> with the archery mule deer the the and that's an that's an example that happens to me just about every year where i go i say to myself hey i can go in and i can i can try to beat all these eyes but i know i'm not going to so i've walked away from good bucks because i'm not in like i said i'm i got a five-day window yeah uh and i can only hunt so many days i got a day of travel two days of travel a and a five-day hunt in the middle so five days where i can actually hunt and so after I've had days where I've walked away from bedded bucks because I need to find something that's easier to stock. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not, like, I'm, like I said, I'm not in the stage where I need to have a big antlered mature mule deer. I just want a mule deer at right. this point. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Um, I'm a little bit curious. So when you started this adventure, it sounds like maybe eight years ago, total, um, have you always been going solo? Have you been going with, but like, what's kind of your, like the group look like? Cause you know, we archery elk hunt now with eight people. And so there's yeah. lots of fast learning. We break up into four groups of two. We start scouting landscapes. We start finding elk, you know, and we're hitting in the first three days, we hit 12 different spots and try to zero in on where the elk are. 
Um, we have, you know, 12 different sets of information, lessons learned in those first three days, and then we can start to put it together in the last four. Yeah. But when you're by yourself, you hit one spot a day, you get one set of experiences a day. And so that's kind of why I'm a little bit curious, like what's that look like for you? Yeah, so the very first year I went, I went with a guy and man, we had an awesome year. Like first hunt ever, his first hunt, mule deer hunt ever. My first mule deer hunt. Well, it wasn't my first mule deer hunt. My first mule deer hunt in South Dakota. And we ended up locating a really good buck. We went up into this drainage, knocked him out of his bed. Uh, and he was at 58 yards and my buddy smoked him the next day. Uh, we, we know we packed him out the next day uh, in the afternoon. We went back in and I located a, uh, a, a medium sized mule deer. I got up above him, shot down. I hit him one lung, never found him. Okay. And so that was, that was the first year since then. I've gone solo. You know, there's one year I brought a cameraman with me, yeah. but he's, he's with me. He's yeah. not out going somewhere else and, and saying, Oh dude, I saw a whole bunch of deer in this drainage, but I ended up, uh, I'm going solo now sleeping in the back of my truck. Um, or depending on how far I am from a town, I might get a, yeah get a hotel, like a hotel, like a really cheap hotel room. But outside of that, it's just me out there now running solo. And is that because you prefer to hunt that way? Is that because it's hard? Like it is, it's objectively very hard to find people to spend your hunt with because it's your vacation. It's your hunt. Um, you've been yeah. looking forward to all year. Like you gotta, you gotta have people that, that you know, you can work with. You're not going to get sick of, you're not going to fight. You're not going to be at each other's throats or cutting each other off. I mean, it takes a lot right. to find a good hunting partner and it's not easy. A lot of people are just like, I don't have it. I don't have someone I can bring out in the mountains with me for seven days yeah white tails i'm a solo guy like yeah. i don't i don't hunt with any groups of people i have my own properties i go do my own thing the reason that i don't go hunting out west with really anybody anymore is and i, I do it solo is a straight up scheduling yeah it's like when I can go, doesn't mean this person can go. Um, everybody's got really busy lives. Everybody's got kids and things like that. So when I get an opportunity to step away, like I, I need to do it on my, the, my best, like what works best for me and not what works best for me and somebody else. Now, mm. am I opposed to it? Absolutely not. I actually enjoy going on Western hunts uh, with a, a second guy that we can tag team uh, a, a big drainage or a valley. We can go our separate ways and yeah. then, you know, oh my God, what'd you see? Well, I got, I got a big buck bedded. Okay, don't move. I'll be over there. I'll watch him through the spotter. And as you go in and, and do it that way, if you mess up, I can see him, you know, like there's yeah. just, so, there's so many benefits to having another set of eyes out there and being able to just cover more ground, see more angles, bounce ideas off of each other. Because one thing that I do is I get in a rut where I feel like I, I need to do the same thing every time. And then it would be beneficial if someone said to me, hey, slow down a second, dude. Let's let's think about this idea or, right. or run different scenario, scenarios by each other or say, hey, this buck is worth 
putting a stock on or, Hey, look at all those does with him. Let's, let's just leave him alone. Let's go find something else. And we can just mark that he's here so we can check this drainage tomorrow. And if he's still in here and has a, maybe he's one ridge over or one drainage over right. next time. And we can, we can, you know, get us easier stock on him that time. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of, in my experience, there's a lot of also like soft benefits to having a hunting partner on a Western trip. Like you talked about all like very tactically sound benefits. Like we shoot a deer, we can get it out in half the time. I can have a spotter watching, giving me hand signals. He's still there. He's gone. Um, there's a lot of things, but like, and as others know it, and you've probably seen this, like you go seven days in the back of your truck, you know, maybe you don't even have cell phone reception. You can't be checking in with the family. Like there's things that start to wear on you. And like a lot of people, mm-hmm. unless you like do it a lot, like you're an Aaron Snyder or a Cameron Haynes and you just live in the back country and you're used to it. Like if it's not something you do ever or make maybe this is the first trip, you start to like be like, Oh man, why am I here? This sucks. You know, nothing's working. You just like start to, your no, mind can wander easily yeah. wander. And it's just like yeah. when you have someone there, that's like got an equal energy as you like, even they might have been in the same place alone, but when you're together and you're like, you can you can keep each other a little like not like you're having like accountability meetings, but like you're not gonna voice your like concerns as much. Like yeah, you might be having a shit day, but you're not gonna like complain to your buddy about it. You're just right. gonna like suck if, it up. If you have, going. yeah, if you have the right hunting partner at, who is also a friend and who also knows you, like you can say things like. All right, dude, let's go. Come on. Yeah. Let's move. Let's go. And then that person will ultimately say, no, dude, let's just chill here a second. And it will lead to a conversation or you're just like, all right, let's go. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's Hey, let's go do this. Let's go do this. Yeah. And so you're actually communicating uh, with another human other than having an internal conversation with yourself where you're second guessing everything that you, you should do. Yeah. Right? Hey, and think we-, we should move. Yeah. Let's move. And then when you're by yourself, you're like, oh, man, this isn't work. I'm just going to go get, like, lunch. I'm going to go to town and, you know, whatever. And it's so easy to check out of a hunt when you're by yourself, yep. you know, four or five days in. I did that on an elk hunt once. I was the only one. I got five random points from Colorado. They messed up in their system and gave me five elk points. And so I cashed in on them and went out, but I was the only one that had could get a tag. So I'm doing a nine-day alpine rifle hunt by myself. It's cold. Sleeping in the back of my truck, 13 below. It snows. Elk... It's just like endless things. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go and get a hotel. I'm going to get a pizza. I'm going to like, I'm going to come back tomorrow with a different mindset. Cause this, it sucks. Like it was not fun, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's fun to go out and have fun. I just talked about that. (laughs) Yeah. I actually just talked about that, um, in a, in a rut, like a, uh, back end of the rut whitetail, uh, where, if there's a lot of guys out there and I it happened to me this year where I was struggling, you know, I put a bad shot on a big deer and uh, he ended up living, but it just kind of wrecked my world for a little bit. And so the best thing for me to do was actually take a day off and go in, you know, and, and go hang with the family and come back. The only asterisk there on that comment is though, when you're out, when you're out west and you're driving 10 11 hours There's no, you can't do yeah. you can't do that because ultimately you're hurting yourself in the long run by just straight up the amount of time cuz you're missing one potentially two hunts right an afternoon or a morning or a morning yeah. and afternoon and you know you get into an area 
it's four or five, six o'clock in the afternoon, you locate a deer. Well, hey, guess what? Um, it's good to find them, but you don't have enough time for a stock. And knowing mule deer, he's not going to be in that drainage tomorrow. If you're looking forward to another fall of hunting big bucks, but you're tired of freezing your tail off or getting busted by does, head over to maverickhunting.com and check out their Maverick and Booner blinds. Both series are incredibly easy to set up and get out in the woods. I set up two of the six panel blinds in the same week. And whether your favorite spot is on a field edge or way back in the sanctuary, you can have a hard-sided blind in your favorite spot this season. Keep the elements out and you're sent in with a Maverick hunting blind. The best part is Maverick blinds ship out of their factory in just one or two days, which means you still have plenty of time to get a comfortable blind set up before the cold weather arrives and those big bucks are cruising through your spots. Go to maverickhunting.com and use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, to save 10%. That's right, 10% on your Maverick hunting blinds. Morning. Right. Yeah, no, it is. There's a lot that goes into it, and and so that's why it's nice to just have like a. I think two is better than one, but it. I think like three, is like where I would like to be, like three or four guys. I like I like a lot of things about having one pickup, I really do, um. But like two guys, you can start to get on each other's throat really easy. But as soon as you add that mediator, you know. Me and Dan, yeah. and we don't agree. We're kind of button heads on stuff. But then, then there's that third guy, and he kind of like, well, I think Dan's right. And it's like, all right, well, I guess I got to shut up. I lost the vote. You know, we're doing it Dan's yeah. way. I think that third guy, yeah. like once you get to the three people that are all like good buddies, killers, you're all committed, driven. No one's going to give up. Like those are like baseline requirements. But when you add that third person, I think the dynamic really changes and takes a lot of stress off. Because sometimes it's just like, you know, you and I are stuck five days, like talking to each other. What if we run out of shit to talk yep. about? Now we're just sitting in the truck for twelve hours on a road trip, silent. Like it, it can get yeah. it can get kind of weird. And you add that third yeah. or fourth person, it starts to really alleviate a lot of things. Yeah, I, I I've been there. <laughs> like I I went to Nebraska one year with a guy that I met. Um, he's a great guy. Don't get me wrong, dude. I loved I loved every second of it. But we had a day where we were voicing our opinions, but then not really, you know, like we didn't want to start a conflict really with each yeah. other. But then, so we went out and we did ultimately, we did what I wanted to do. And we walked for, we walked for hours and didn't see a, a single mule deer. We got eaten alive by mosquitoes. And so it was just a, and, and then we were, two or three hours away from where we started off and where we, we said we were going to be focusing a lot of our time. So there was uh, uh, a day where, and then at the same time, we were 45 miles from the closest town. Oh, So we had to go through this town, then another two and a half hour drive to get to back where we were at. So the next morning we could go, and put ourselves in a better position, but, but it was rough. You know, we were, we were men at the end of it and said, Hey, fuck it, dude. I'm sorry. We apologized to each other. Right. Um, and we got, we got over it and we went back to hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I was there with a buddy who had him on the podcast. We're still good yeah. buddies, but uh, he passed a buck 
on the first day that I was like, dude, I don't think you should have passed that buck. Like we're at the, we're out in Southeast Montana secrets out. Southeast Montana is not the gravy train anymore for mule deer. And, yeah. uh, he saw a four by four and he was just like holding out for something more. And I'm like, dude, I don't think we're going to see another four by four. And so we hunted the rest of the day and we wanted to go back into that spot the next morning. We got there early, but there was a truck parked, and we're like, well, he could have went right, you know, we're going left. So we get in there. Sure enough, we were, we're like on his backtrack. We run into him. He's a hundred yards away. This is a rifle hunt. And I'm yeah. like, dude, we got to back out. Like we can't this, like he's here first. He's like, well, why don't we just go like 200 yards over? I'm like, that's not how it works in the West. Like yeah. he's got a rifle. He's covering this whole area. Like we can't just bump over 200 yards. And he was pissed. Like I thought we were going to get into a real fight. And for the rest of the day, it was a little awkward. It turns out we both shot a buck. We're both happy. I think, you know, everything kind of calmed down, but you know, when things don't work like that, like everyone's like, Hey, I love this dude. It's a great time. Well, okay. Now, how do you, what do you think when neither of you are having success and you're on day three of not seeing a deer? Do you think, you know, do you think you guys are still going to be getting along at the same way you are <laughs> when you're whitetail hunting and you're seeing deer every night? Like that changes things. And a lot of people don't think about that. Like what happens if things aren't going well, how does the relationship right. work? So, right. Are you going to the same spot year after year, or do you change spots? Like, how do you pick where you're going to go? Because I assume you're doing all DIY public land stuff. Yeah, all DIY, all public land. Like I said, some of the places are close to a town to where it's maybe a 30-minute drive in the mornings, and I can, you know, I can get into this public and get into a position where it's not a huge drive in the morning. If the temperatures are are suitable for it, you know it's not like twenty degrees below zero. Mm-hmm. I have a really good I have a really good situ- like camping situation in the bed of my truck, and I've made it so it's pretty comfortable back there. I got a topper yeah on on my truck, and so that's from a comfortability standpoint. I, I really like to be out there as long like i'd rather not go back to a hotel every night i'd rather go to my truck and and just be closer to it that way you can get more sleep you can there's no real stress of back and forth back and forth you're not spending as much money in gas or food you've already brought everything that you need yeah and that's that's really how i approach it are you hitting, so like you said, the last four or five years, you've gone to South Dakota. Are you like the same unit, the same, like, are you hunting the same, you yeah. know, depending on where you find the deer, the same areas, or are you saying, nah, I didn't really like that area. I'm going to move up 200 miles. So, I'm going to move down a hundred miles. Yeah. So here's the best thing about having a podcast that a lot of people listen to. All right. And that is straight up information. And not only do I get this information from people who maybe follow me, but also I am a, I'm the guy who talks to absolutely everybody I run into out there, mm-hmm. whether I'm talking to a guy who I find in the backcountry, or I'm talking to a guy that I see at town who has camo or uh, at a gas station where there's a big mule deer hanging in there. Hey, where'd you get that? And how, hey, where, where are the deer at? I'm talking to everybody yeah. and I'm getting information from everybody. And so in the past, I've gone to the same areas over and over again. And then so the first year I went out to South Dakota, it was hot. I mean, I was seeing 
hundreds of deer a day. I was, we were locating deer, able to move in on them, all that good stuff. And then as things start to change, right? Maybe like you, you mentioned earlier, grazing patterns or grazing rotations, uh, different times of year, how much rain we, we get or don't get plays an impact in where deer are at. And so really I go back to the same areas, but then adjust within them. Yeah. Uh, like within, I would say a, a 45, 50 mile radius to try to locate deer within that same that same river system yeah, or that same, the, a big drainage that runs for 20, 30 miles or something like that. But now what I do, what I've done is I I'm, I'm starting to learn properties that are better. I'm trying, I'm starting to learn, you know, where it's like certain pieces of public land deer or uh, cattle have to be out by this specific date every single year yeah some of in the past some of those properties they could have cattle in them all year round or that it would be a, a wintering graze for these cattle so i know that now i now i know hey i need to stay away from this because there's going to be cattle in here i need to go to this area right. where cattle haven't been yet uh, things like that so i'm starting to learn a little bit of that on top of just having people who I know live out there and hunt out there. And they're like, just, Hey, Hey dude, here's where I saw a deer last, uh, you know, a month ago or last year, here's a deer, here's an area that has a high population that I've, I've seen earlier this year where I shot my buck or whatever. And so I go and visit those spots and having, having local Intel plays an absolute huge, it's huge for me because Oh, shit, I don't know if there's deer there or not when I get there. <laughs> yeah. same, same as same as like when I've been on these elk hunts. It's like, okay, I'm driving 18 hours. I'm climbing 2,000 feet, setting up a tent or a camp, and then I'm going to climb another 1,000 feet. And then there's there's a good chance the elk aren't even there for five straight days. Right. So it would it would have been nice if some local that I know said, I, I wouldn't go there, man. I haven't seen an elk there for two or three weeks. So that I, I rely heavily on that, that type of Intel. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to, it sounds like you're, you're leveraging, I would call that the same spot, right? Like in the West, in the front, in the broken country, like 50 miles, like that's the same spot. You have, you know, the roads, yeah. you know, the river systems. Exactly. You're leveraging previous year's data. I mean, if you were to say like, nah, I'm bouncing, you know, hundred miles this way, hundred miles that way, like those are different spots. You you're learning roads for the first time, which I like to drive roads when I get there. Like I like to see the area we're going to hunt. So the first day I might not even get out of the truck. I might just drive around, check things out. I mean, if I see something I really like, I'll definitely get out and hunt, but I'm trying to figure out where are roads, where are areas. And then that wastes a day right off the bat. So if you can go back and be like, I know these areas, I got pins from last year. Like, you know, one thing that I really like is trying to figure out what the winter range is for local grazers because they probably didn't have any cattle in there all summer long. There's probably more grass if it's their winter range. Now, usually October, November is when they're going to start moving their cattle. They're going to wean their calves and send them off, and then they're going to move their cows into the winter range. So it kind of depends if you're before or after that. But if you're hunting before that, like when I was archery hunting in, in North Dakota, if you could figure out which pastures were the winter range, they typically had more grass in them, and then they'd have more game in them because of that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of but you don't learn that stuff if you bounce new units every year or at least you don't right. learn it early you 
And then that's right. when you, you know, you're like, oh, I look back. I always shoot my animal on the last day. It's like, well, yeah, because you went to a new spot. It took you five days to learn where where things were, and then you shot one on the sixth day. Right. And that's a lot of people's Western right. hunt. I mean, there a lot of people shoot them on the last day because it takes three or four days to learn an area. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, and that's why I like, don't get me wrong. I like to go use that local Intel and go check out a new spot. But at the same time, if I can go back to a spot that I'm very comfortable with, and I know that there might not be deer right now, but I know that over time, um, like a, a two, the next day deer could be in there. The day after that deer could be in there. Yeah. And so I'm not tip on the public that I go and hunt. We're talking thousands and thousands of acres. Yeah. I'm not talking like a 40 here or a, you know, or an 80 here. Cause out West, it could just be a straight prairie dog village. The whole thing could just be a prairie dog village, flat, no terrain. And you, and it's nothing's going to live there. No, but I like, I like big, large pieces that have the ability to get lost in. And what I mean by that is I can go deeper than anybody's going to go. Yeah. Right? I'm going to, I'm either going to ride my e-bike in there. I'm going to, or, you know, potentially take advantage of some laws uh, where I can ride an e-bike up to a certain point. And then this year, not necessarily local Intel, but the first year that I went out there, I got a hold of a, a farmer mm. or a rancher. Yeah. And I said, Hey, I shot a buck. We followed blood up to your fence. Do you mind if I cross your fence to go look into your property in this drainage? He let me, I went in and I've, I've texted him at least once every year. So this year I called him up. I left a message and I said, Hey, do you mind if I ride my e-bike? through your property to get to a, um, a piece of public that is really far away. It's basically surrounded. Uh, the public goes into private in like this peninsula and there's no access on the Western side of this big gigantic mm. 33,000 acre chunk. It's all surrounded. So you have to access it through one way. The far, the rancher said, yes, I can access, I can ride my bike through his hayfield." And sure enough, I get out there and it, it made, it opened up a whole new view of the drainage. Unfortunately, there was no mule deer in there, but it's that type of asking, not necessarily to hunt, but just to ride your bike through or drive a truck through, or even walk up through a corner to get, uh, to get to that, those, uh, those locations. Oh, yeah, that's a game changer. I mean, if you can, I mean, because a lot of people, archery hunting, I think archery hunting the broken country, people aren't really doing backpack hunts. It, they're doing day hunts or half-day hunts. They're parking, they're walking out, they're coming back to their truck, they go to a new spot, park. You know, so they're not necessarily going in deep, which is probably a shame. They probably should go in deep. But if they have to spend, like, an entire day just to get somewhere, they're going to be like, why would I do that? There's all this stuff I can get to easy. And by you, yeah. now you can get there easy. You can do that same thing. You can go in there, you know, watch the sunrise, see if there's any bucks. If there's not, you can get out quick and go to the next spot for the evening. Yeah. And I think that's a game changer. I don't think that necessarily works as much in, like, the Alpine because that's where people are doing backpack hunts. They're going in 10 yeah. miles and setting up. And so they're really, you know, it's kind of interesting, even though that's hard, way harder than what you're talking about. People just don't do it. Like, I never see people right. do that. 
in the foothills country, if you will, or the broken country. And it seems like it could be a really good way to, you got to commit, like you're committing to a spot in a way or finding access like you are. But it's an interesting look at why, like what's different about the hunting strategies. Cause in a way you're kind of hunting, your hunting plan is affected by what other people are doing. If you pull up to where you're going to hunt, there's four trucks, even in archery season, you know, I would be like, all right, well, I'm going somewhere else. Like, I just don't want to deal with, you know, not only the eyes of the does on the hill, but the other hunters and the, you know, like. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not even specific. How do I put this? It's not even specific trailheads or parking lots because there's certain pieces like this, this uh, piece of ground that I, uh, that I went to that I started off my mule deer hunt with this year was a place that I'd been almost every year, uh, ended up going, taking this long road all the way back. And I backdoored this. Anybody can get to it. It's not a mystery. Um, and then I can drive my truck all the way up to this fence. And then from that fence, I can take my e-bike and then I can take my e-bike from that fence to another fence. And then there's nothing past that fence like nothing no horses it's only foot traffic yeah from from there and so uh certain you know certain parts uh of the country like that yeah that's really helpful i think an e-bike would be amazing and i'm an electrical engineer so i wanted to design one that charges itself that has like regenerative braking oh yeah so you use your e-bike to pedal up the mountain and you're you gotta i talked to a buddy in our l camp that's got one he's like yeah i could ride all the way up here in one battery charge and we went from like nine five to eleven thousand feet he's like yeah. i'd have to pedal like maybe 10 percent, 15 percent, but the bike's gonna basically do all the work and i'm like yeah and that'd be sweet yeah. if you could like turn on charging on the way down and yep you know you wouldn't never get back to zero but you could get like a lot of that recovered and then you know extend your battery life a couple more days but in yeah. the flat country oh my gosh would that be a like oh yeah cheat I, can, code. I think it was like three or four days off the battery that i got uh and that's and that's by what i do is i disengage so in order to make this particular e-bike a bicycle because there's a lot of places where the e-bike laws are not black and white they're yes. very gray all right so this an e-bike is a motorized this. So I, vehicle. Yeah, it's a motorized vehicle. Or for, for me and what I read uh, and what I, the research that I've done in certain states, if it's below a certain wattage, so my e-bike is a 750 watt e-bike. Um, and so anything above that, like an, uh, the next step would be a thousand watts. Yeah. Those are considered a motorized vehicle. But anything at that 750 or below, is not Ooh, um, yeah. if you disconnect the throttle. Oh, so you have to just pedal it yourself. Yeah, right. And so instead of, because the throttle, if the throttle's engaged, then it becomes a motorized vehicle. Yeah. If I use the throttle. But if I disconnect that, unplug it, and I only pedal, then it's, then my pedal, my I'm using human power to engage the motor. And so that's where there's a little bit of a loophole in some of, in some of these laws. So disconnecting the throttle, it's under 750, then it's a, then it's a bicycle. Well, even a fat tire bicycle is like, you're going to move faster. You're going to burn less energy in almost all situations. I mean, if you're going up steep grade, then you probably just walk, 
But other than that, yeah. like you're gonna be so much faster going anywhere with that bike. Yeah, yeah I've always wanted one, yeah. but they're not cheap in summer. Mm. Not cheap. No, no. But I also use it for my whitetail farm too, because I, I, I've talked about this since I, um, since, oh shit, I've talked about this until I've been blue in the face that my, my whitetail property, I can only access it through one gate. There's only one gate I can go through. Then the rest is surrounded by other property owners. Okay. So if I, if I walk in through that gate and walk to my tree stands, everything on this hillside sees me runs away. But if I come in on an e-bike, they just stare at me and then they say, oh, well, he's not a human. That's like a car or something. Right. And then I go stash it in this pin oak stand and then I will walk down to my tree stands or my saddle wherever I have my platforms and things like that. And so the, just the access that that allows you and the, the amount that you can get away with, it has been an absolute game changer for me. Would you feel comfortable like packing out so let's let's just give you the benefit of the doubt you're going to shoot a 160 you know mule deer a mature mm -hmm. buck he's going to be a little bit heavier than that whitetail you know probably not taking him out in one load anyway but he he's still going right. to probably have i mean 75 50 to 75 pound pack outs if you do it in two trips would mm -hmm. you feel pretty comfortable riding your bike around with that load or would you walk it out if you shot no. a deer and you're and you're packing it out so here's what I would do more than likely. And it's hard to say because it uh, depends on what uh, time of day I shot the deer, right? If it's an evening hunt, more than likely what I would do is I would leave my bow and leave my, uh, I don't know if, if I had any, probably just my bow, maybe some clothing um, out there. Focus on getting the, the meat out first. Yep. And then because you can, you can three or four miles back, maybe even eight miles back. That's a, that's, let's say an, uh, 30 minutes on an e-bike. But the weight, just you the know? weight, like you would feel comfortable right, like right. from a safety standpoint of riding with like 75 pounds on your back. Right. So my e-bike is weighted for, uh, I want to say 350. Okay. Or something like that. I'm 230. So I can put. If I wanted to, I could put a hundred pounds on my back. The other thing that's really cool is that the e-bike that I have has a back shelf on it. So I can take rope or straps and, and tie that meat down to this back. Okay. And then I can put, I can put maybe a quarter there and then I can put two quarters on my back. And then I'm just coming in for maybe the rest of the gear and a light load on my way up for my second trip. Okay, I've always been like curious, like on because mountain roads are notoriously bad. Oh yeah, and I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to. I don't know. I've never been on an e-bike. I don't know if I'd want to be bouncing around with like an extra hundred pounds on my back, and then like I hit a bump weird or something, and like that difference like causes me to not be able to control it or catch it, and all mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm going, you know, head over handlebars with a deer on my back. I would, I would say this: going downhill in in those things, you just take it slow. Yeah, right. or, or going down hill is easy. Like, you could just walk it out. Yeah. But, yeah, if you got some flat stretch, like you said, eight miles on a flat stretch, you just turn the throttle on, turn and burn. Man, that would make yeah. pack outs a lot more enjoyable. If, but at the same time, depends on where you're at. Because if you're in that no throttle zone, then you still have to do the pedaling with all that weight on your back. 
Yeah, uphill probably would. I don't know. You'd, you'd probably just have to try it out if it feels easier or not. But downhill, even pedaling, mm-hmm. like you're just like you said, you're coasting and riding brakes instead. Although, did you right. just see? I'm sure you've heard of drone deer recovery now with your podcast. Yep. Did you just see that, Mike? I had Mike on my my entrepreneurship show. Did you see that he just got a drone that he can carry deer with? Uh, no, I haven't. But I did see uh, people car- carrying elk out with helicopters. I've talked to a but I have a buddy in Montana that did that. He got he helicoptered into a unit. He had landowner. It took him a long time. I don't know how he got landowner permission, but he finally got landowner permission to cross a ranch into a landlocked public. So he applied, got the tag. That summer, the ranch sold. So now he's got the tag, but the ranch sold. The new guy wanted ten thousand dollars to walk across his property, and so yeah. he went and hired a helicopter. They went in next morning because they couldn't hunt they both shot two huge bulls helicopter picked them up flew them right over that rancher's house and dropped them in his pickup <laughs> so okay. so i wondered what what costs more the the uh using a helicopter to, to get in and remove elk or the the ten thousand dollar trespasser fee i well i listened to a randy newberg show one time and he said if people knew how cheap this was a lot more people would do it so I don't know, five hundred bucks for a helicopter drop camp, maybe depending on how close they are, maybe a thousand dollars. I I really don't know, um, but I don't think it's ten grand. Now, if you got to like have them fly halfway across the state of Montana to pick you up and then bring you to your spot, like obviously you're gonna pay more for that if you're not close by right. the service. But yeah, no, the drone deer recovery. He's got a drone and he showed a video. His uh, nephew or cousin or something shot like a a year and a half old buck and he picked it up with the drone and flew it around on a big rope and then dropped it back down. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Like I felt kind of guilty using my e-bike, a little <laughs> bit, right? <laughs> but yeah, you like, lose a lot of street cred. Like I packed this thing out. Ah, you did not. I saw the video. You used a drone. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the same time, it's like cell cams. Yeah. Right? You know, a lot of a lot of uh, Western uh, states are passing different laws about you know what what a, a, a trail camera is, what a cell cam is. You know how you can use it, how you can't use it. And I mean, even this year, when I was sitting in my whitetail stand, I had trail camera or cell cam pictures come to my phone 200 yards away. I could like the the camera was telling me what was coming through this pinch point. And I said to myself, man, I don't know. I don't know if I, I like, I like this. I don't know because it's, it's causing me to do something different than just sit there. Right. Like, yeah, but I I was going to rattle, I was going to rattle at some of these deer. And I was like, Hmm. I don't know, man. I think that's kind of a very fine, you know, splitting hair situation because you were like, what I say is like, you were already in the stand. Yeah. And so like this year I had a cell cam, I call it Maverick cause we just got a Maverick partnership with a blind company and there's a cell cam underneath it. And I spent six hours setting this blind up. And then that night, this huge 160 class buck walks right underneath my stand but I'm sitting there, and I'm getting there like 90 minutes before shooting light because of, like, I, this this is a small farm. It's very open. I wanted to make sure I didn't bump any deer. And so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I get a ding, and I'm like, oh, hey, there's a deer, like, right out that window, you know, 15 feet away from my my enclosed blind. And sure enough, I pull up the binoculars. It's like a full moon night, and I can see the deer. Um, but the difference that I think – it's not a big difference, but it's like at least we were already in the stand. We were already hunting versus yeah. like out west, you could put a couple of cell cams in a river valley and you'd be like, oh, that deer's working up this riverbed 
and then you could skedaddle all the way around the property and cut him off like that. You could do that, and I that I'm not a fan of because now you really are changing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and not to like crazy change the subject, but like the drones things too. Yeah, like they're at certain drone companies are advertising. Hey, it's like shotgun season, uh, rifle season. It's almost here. Hire us to fly over top of your property to see where the deer are hanging out. That way, you know how to get in. That way, you know where the deer are. And therefore, you have a higher likelihood of, you know, getting a shot off. And, and that's just like, hmm, yeah, you like feel like that games. would fall under aircraft laws, though. Yeah, I don't know. Like 24 hours before you can yeah. hunt with the aid of an aircraft. And to me, it's just like, well, if, you know, our whitetail farms, like, I know where the deer are already for the most part. Mm -hmm. Plus they move like you could tell me that, but in 24 hours, he's not going to be there anymore. Right. Especially in the rut. I mean, yeah, maybe early season. It is kind of weird. I get what you're saying though. It's, it's just, it's the entire sentiment of technology. Like where is the line between like sporting and shooting? Right. Yeah. And I, I feel it like it's very real. Like should I, you know, thousand yard rifles are out there. Like you can shoot game at a thousand yards if you have the skill set for it. Do mm-hmm. I think that's sporting? I don't know. I can't decide. I don't. I lean towards no. I mean, I'm not that shooter, yeah. so maybe I'm biased. But you know, that's it. There's a lot of things that I think you're gonna like, and and that's just today. What about in ten years from now? Oh yeah. So yeah, guys, being able to look at something through a trail camera, pull a gun out of that trail camera, and <laughs> video game mode it over. Okay, it's in a food plot. Okay. Yeah, gun engage, pop, and then all you have to do is go out and get it. Well, and so here's the difference. I think that's horrible. I would never want to do that. But that's yeah. the same exact technology that helps paraplegic people enjoy the outdoors. And yeah. then I'm like, yeah, I think that's pretty cool that you offer someone that would not have the opportunity to shoot a deer otherwise the ability to use you know, electronics and, and, you know, total control system to harvest a deer. I'm talking from, I'm talking from your couch. Well, that's the same. Like, the technology is there because, you know, someone that's in that position is obviously not interacting with the gun at all. So it's all remote. It's all, yeah. it, it's just right. very close proximity remote control. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. But that technology could also do what you're saying. And I'd be like, no, I'm not a fan of that at all. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. I just, I, I like to bitch about certain things, but I also like to, <laughs> to just keep my head down and do my own thing. Oh yeah. That's the only reason that's like the only thing you really can do at the end of the day and keep your sanity. Yeah. You know, however, I'm a huge fan of resident rights. Okay. And that, and I feel that as someone who lives in Iowa, myself and the rest of the hunters who live in Iowa have, have the right and should have and should be doing this to voice their opinion on on certain rules and regulations on how to uh, distribute non-resident tags, uh, what seasons there should be, what weapons you can use, things mm. like that. Um, uh, like all that should be up to the residents and the scientists. Um, and I'm not saying no non-residents. Yeah, I'm saying I'm saying there needs to be research and there needs to be studies yeah. that that provide the information on whether or not we need more or less tags allocated yeah. every single year, right? It's all based off research and science, not based off of uh, politicians and lobbying and things like that. 
I agree with you. I think it gets into some interesting territory, though. And like, let's take the case of Montana, for example. Um, a resident elk tag in Montana is either twenty or thirty dollars. I can't remember. A non-resident elk tag is nine hundred dollars. Yeah. And so I agree with you that the state, the model we have in America, the American conservation model, is the greatest one on earth in relation to wildlife. There's nothing out mm-hmm. there in the world that that can compare with it, and it's based on the states own the wildlife. Not the mm-hmm. government, not the federal government, not the the individual citizen, but the state. And they decide, like you said, like the state should decide, i.e. the residents of the state, the state biologists, all that stuff. Where I think it gets into some interesting territory, like Montana can play a little game of mess with the bull and get the horn. Because if they make all these rules that either upset or cut out non-resident hunters, it's like, we pay 30 times more for that resource than your guy does. And I, so, you know, it's a huge revenue generator. We have a lot of skin in the game. So it's like, yeah, I think you guys should set the rules. But it would be nice to, like, at least have some non-resident um, consideration, too. And I don't mm-hmm. think you're even talking about that. But, like, you saw that, like, lately, like, Montana just passed a rule where if you go guided, you get two points per year instead of one point per year. And so it's giving anyone with money the, the chance to step ahead of, in the curve. And so it's just interesting because it get like the non-residents pay so much more money for the same resource as a resident does, and they don't get any real input. And so I don't know what the solution is, but I would be very concerned about like if I was the Montana power of you know decision making, like man, I don't want to upset these non-residents. Like that's millions and millions of dollars of revenue that our state gets to use for resources. But how do we balance that with? the residents that choose to live here and benefit our state all year long. Yeah. Yep. And that's what I'm saying. I was just like, you know, a non-resident can come in and pay $900. He can come in for a week. He can go use an outfitter that all this is stimulating the economy. Um, He can buy gas. He can buy food, groceries, right. For, for one, maybe two weeks a year. And then he goes away and all that money is spent somewhere else. So, right. But the residents, Although they're paying $20 for an elk tag, they're paying taxes. They're paying every, every single, like all year round. Yeah. They're paying gas for gas every day. Yeah. They're paying taxes in that state every day. Yeah. And they choose to live there. Like yeah, Iowa. Exactly. It's not all pros living in Iowa, despite how big the bucks are. Like you still got to live yeah, in right. Iowa. <laughs> I mean, yep. and so like, if you choose to live there, yeah, you should have benefits. And it's an interesting, I don't know. I don't know which direction that'll go yeah. in the West because now the West runs into public land transfer topics every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And they yep. want all of us to, you know, rally with them and fight off, you know, big politicians that want to transfer federal lands to state and therefore sell off to private entities and it's like, well, where were you when we wanted to come hunt and you started charging us 30 times more or, you know, making it so we can't get a take? You know what I mean? That's the balance where I'm yeah. like, ooh, man, this is – I would not want to be in that role. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that role. And – You just get – we just get to know, critique it from the outside. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, I just – I don't know if – for example, here's here's one thing. I don't want Iowa. I don't want a person like myself who is 100 able, like I'm 100% able-bodied. Um, I don't want there to be a crossbow season during archery season. I don't want you to be able to use a cross in, in Iowa. I feel like that will ex- change the dynamic 
of how all this works. But let's say Ohio or any other state that allows crossbows during the archery season, I don't give a shit. Minnesota just state. went that way. Yeah. And so I don't care. Yeah. I don't, I don't care one bit on, of what happens in any other states. If they, if they say, Hey, Hey, non-residents we're cutting tags or we're going to charge more for a tag. I can choose to go there or not and do yeah. participate in whatever their rules and regulations are, but I don't want someone else coming into my state and telling me what uh, I can or can't do who doesn't even live here. Oh yeah. That would, yeah. Like you're saying this, but like in that example, like, I don't the federal government would never do this, but if they just came out with a law that said the U.S. Supreme Court recognizes crossbows as bows across all 50 states. And so then you're like, yeah, you as an Iowa resident completely get cut out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. it's tricky. I mean, I don't know. There's so many sides of that crossbow debate and people get very hot, very fast. I've been fortunate. We hunt all family private land in Minnesota. Yeah. And Minnesota isn't known for an exceptional deer herd anyway where we hunt, so it's not like we have a very yeah. valuable resource to protect like Iowa does. I mean, Iowa's deer herd is is very well manicured, and it's been built to be world-known. And so the, yeah. it's a different set of considerations for sure when you're thinking of like that. It'd be like, you know, limited-entry Utah elk units with 400-inch bulls all of a sudden going over the counter. It's like we've spent decades building this place up to be trophy potential, and then all of a sudden we're going to let everyone hunt here like the resources are going to get destroyed yeah so yeah very interesting topics i don't i'm glad i'm not in any of these positions to make decisions because <laughs> i'm confident i can make a decision i'm also very confident a lot of people would hate me yeah so same here yeah i don't know which way that would be for the better of if it's for the better of the deer for the better of my peace and sanity yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's how the decisions should be being made. I mean, for the betterment of the natural resource and not because someone has more or less money or a business says, hey, I want there to be this in your state or like a non-resident or or, or outside influence, so to speak. Yeah. So like I've, I'm, I'm the kind of person who like you should make the decision based off the natural resource and the, like the resident involvement, but science has to play a huge role in any time you're, you're dealing with like tag allocation, weapon allocation for, for the natural resource that we're hunting. Cause most times as hunters, we're taking away, we're taking away from the natural resource. We're taking away from the landscape yeah. and we're not necessarily giving anything back to it. And so we have to, like someone who is not as greedy because I mean, you in Iowa, let's say Iowa turns into, I don't know, in Oklahoma or a Southern state that has like three bucks. Mm -hmm. You can shoot yeah. three bucks over the counter. Like, Missouri, you can, yeah. like th yeah, that, that, that resource goes away in a season, yeah. in a, in a single season. Hey, uh, we're going to give all non-residents over the counter unless you own large amounts uh, of land and you're going to be able to um, like um, outfitters would pop up everywhere yeah. and all these, all these things would happen. And so that's why it's important for everything to be based off science and in the best interest for the natural resource and, and not money and business. Yeah. And it's lobbying. I mean, I think 
yeah. the end of the day, lobbying. I mean, do you think Raven crossbows <laughs> was a part of the decision to legalize crossbows in Minnesota? I think they were. 100%. I mean, every time oh, yeah, you go to dude. the archery range and you see four guys checking out with Raven crossbows, and you're like, that's $16,000 that just went out the door. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, dude, 100%. There, there is there is a, a crossbow, crossbows, or, or crossbow organization that has purchased lobbying in uh, like lobbyists across several states. I know for a fact it's happening because it's happening right now in Iowa and the Iowa Bow Hunters Association, along with a, a groups of other people are trying to put a stop to it. Yeah. I think the lobbying thing is just the, like, that's not helping. I, like it, sh- no. we should realize like in today's day and age with our technology, like why do we need lobbying? Why can't we have an app? Like, why can't Dan have an Iowa.gov app on his phone where an issue gets posted? You get a notification. Like, how do you feel about this? And then there's three scientists up reports on the issue, and you vote. Like, mm-hmm. we can do all of these things now. Why can't we, like, you know, change how we do things? So it's not one person with money motivations at the Capitol, you know, whispering into people's ears. Mm-hmm. seems absolutely seems like we could use some improvements overall which i mean if you figure out how to get that done i mean there's a lot of important topics that would probably benefit from no more lobbying in our country aside from hunting and fishing <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah well it's been a pleasure hearing from you dan talking mule deer spot and stock archery i think spot and stock archery mule deer is going to be one of the hardest uh hardest tags to fill really when it comes down to the yeah. western hunting um, yeah. and so it's nice to, to hear your take on it and, um, and follow along. Hopefully, hopefully the next time you come on the podcast, you're talking about how you packed out a, a big old buck on your e-bike. Man, I hope so. <laughs> Here, you you, you want to know what the, the real hardest thing about going five days in the back country, spot and stock mule deer hunting. Uh, what you guess what the hardest thing is like physically or like jokingly well it's it's gonna be the same i'll just tell i'll just say the hardest thing is hunting like that for a week and then instantly going back into tree stand mode oh yeah and sitting for hours at a time it just it messes with your mind like i was sitting there just like okay all right, is it this time yet? I, I want to get down. I want to move. I want to go up, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's not how you tree stand hunt. You're supposed to be relaxed. You sit back. You're quiet. You don't move. And I, it was a mind game this year for sure, coming straight off of a, uh, a mule deer, a spot and stock hunt into a tree stand hunt. Well, that's why a lot of Western hunters say they can't whitetail hunt because they can't sit still in a tree. Or right. like that right. first time you have that buck come through and stop and maybe bed down at 75 yards and you're stuck in your tree and you just want to move 25 yards and shoot them. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be a challenge. That would be a challenge. Well, for now, I'm going to give you back the rest of your day. I got to wrap up a couple things here too, but it was nice to have you here, Dan, and it was nice for all of you guys to be listening along. Thank you so much. 